everyone. Welcome to Selected Essays, a podcast series from The Point magazine about essays you should read but probably haven't. Each episode, we'll be talking with writers about an essay that's influenced one of their own. My name is Jess Swoboda, and I'm here with my co-host, Zach Fine. Hey, everyone. This week, we spoke with Shumana Roy about Joseph Brodsky's Less Than One in her essay, We Are All Mom to Now, which was published in The Caravan in June 2012. Shumana is an associate professor at Ashoka University. She's the author of several books, including My Mother's Lover and Other Stories, and How I Became a Tree, as well as a novel and two poetry collections. Her essays have appeared in places such as Literary Hub, The Point, Minnesota Review, The Paris Review, and The Chronicle of Higher Education, among others. Also, we just want to let our listeners know that Shumana lives near a few hospitals and that they'll hear some background noise during the recording. Our editor, John, has done his best to reduce the interference, but we're sorry for any inconsistencies in the audio. We hope you'll enjoy this episode and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you have questions, comments, or anything else, send an email to selectedessays at thepointmag.com. We'd love to hear from you. And also be sure to subscribe to The Point, the magazine that brings you content like this podcast. You can find a 50% off discount code exclusive to listeners in the episode notes. Shumana, thanks so much for joining us on this episode of Selected Essays. Thank you. Thank you, Jess and Zach, for having me here. Uh, As I've told you a few times, I love this series and I'm very, very glad to be a part of it. Well, we're excited to have you on. Uh, We were wondering if you could start by telling us a little bit about Joseph Brodsky. Okay. Joseph Brodsky, the Joseph of his name, ironically comes from the Joseph of Joseph Stalin, (laughs) <laughs> so Joseph Brodsky uh, was born in Leningrad to a Russian Jewish family. His father was a photographer for the Soviet Navy and um, eventually lost his position because, as you get it, he was Jewish. The family then subsequently went to live in poverty. Brodsky, uh, whose experience of school life and the classroom wasn't really great and it's a subject he returns to in this uh, title essay of um, you know of this volume um, less than one he quit school at when he was 15 and embarked on on being an autodidact basically leaving uh, living the life of an autodidact reading whatever he understood as literature and in his head the idea of classics was already forming uh, he would have to take on, um, because of the circumstances of his life, a variety of unusual jobs, including, for instance, he worked as a geologist assistant in Central Asia. Um, he taught himself or learned by whatever means English and Polish. He translated the poems of John Donne, and uh, my first introduction to Brodsky was through this, uh, because John Donne was one of the first poets I came to love on the university uh, syllabus, as it were. So from the time uh, Brodsky began publishing poetry, particularly under this anglicized name, Joseph Brodsky, he aroused the ire of Soviet authorities. And it was obviously because of the times it was compounded by the anti-Semitic persecution he faced because of his Jewish background. But the vendetta against Brodsky started at around, I would say, 1964 because of a trial in Leningrad 
and he was sentenced to five years of labor. There were protests from artists and writers, and it was led by Anna Akhmatova, who, as you know, Anna Antibrodsky as, as a successor in the poetry world, as it were. And this was shortly before her death. She helped to secure Brodsky's release after 18 months, but his poetry continued to be banned. Israel invited him to immigrate, and um, Brodsky promptly refused, explaining that he did not identify with the Jewish state or its ideology. He was eventually forced, as you can imagine, to leave the Soviet Union. And in 1972, he moved to Michigan. This essay, I want to say in an aside, was published four years after that move in 1976. By the time he had moved to Michigan with the help of the poet W.H. Auden, who he met on the way to America, uh, he eventually settled in at the University of Michigan as poet in residence. He taught at several universities. He continued to write poetry and plays. And this is very interesting uh, for me that he would write in Russian and translate his work into English. Um, Spender, um, Stephen Spender, the poet, um, would say this about Brodsky, that Brodsky is someone who has tasted extremely bitter bread and his poetry has the air of being ground out between his teeth. Um, and uh, Spender even went on to say that it should not be supposed that Brodsky is a liberal or even a socialist and that he deals in unpleasing, hostile truths and is a realist of the least comforting and comfortable kind. Brodsky, um, almost in, perhaps almost in response to Spender, described himself um, as an exiled writer and as one, and this is from one of his poems, as one who survives like a fish in the sand. In 1987, a year after the publication of Less Than One, this collection of essays, I'm going to, uh, I think we're going to focus on the title essay, Less Than One, but this collection that was published as Less Than One in 1987, a year after its publication in 1986, um, he would be awarded the Nobel Prize. He was awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature the youngest laureate to get that award uh, at that time. So that's, I think, an introduction to Brodsky. Right. No, thank you. That's fantastic. And so you've selected his essay, Less Than One. And in an email exchange with us, you said, Less Than One is an essay in the truest and most original sense of the word. Mm -hmm. There's not a single sentence there that has not made me think about the subject, about the form of the essay itself, and about the aesthetic being inseparable from what we now call politics. So can you say a bit more about this and why you selected this essay to discuss with us today? Thank you. Um, I'm so touched that you remember and you picked this up from the thread. Um, somehow I had read this essay uh, quite some time ago, but somehow because of, I don't know, the intuitive character of history or the intimations of history, I began I came to it again around the time of the Russian-Ukraine conflict, the war, as it were. I'll try to summarize um, the essay and uh, also respond to why, Jess, I mentioned what, what I did about the, uh, 
about this essay less than one. It's very difficult to summarize anything. I always struggle, uh, particularly, but more particularly, that has the title less than one. Uh, because the most immediate thought that comes to us because of our conditioning in numbers is, what is less than one? And then what is the less than one that I will be reading about in this essay? And that this is an essay by a poet. And my introduction to Joseph Brodsky was, like many others, I imagine, was primarily as a poet. Um, that that feeling does not ever leave us. Not when we come to it, not when we move through it. And such is the acute intelligence of Brodsky's language, the halo of his language, as it were, that every word or phrase needs to be twice examined as anything with a halo is almost always twice seen, if not a multiple number of times. Mm -hmm. How does one summarize less than one uh, when one itself is so hard to summarize? Brodsky uh, is trying to understand how the optics of his childhood, or how do I say it, what he calls the, in this very uh, famous phrase, what he calls the militarization of his childhood, his conditioning in images, in their repetitiveness, their repetitive character, how this led him to see and experience and write about the world in the way that he did. You know, I, I, I thought of a few Bengali writers. I was born into Bangla. Um, and I thought of a few Bengali writers who have said that the kind of writer one will be is decided in the first decade of one's life. There's something almost fatalistic about such a whimsical thesis. Uh, but reading Brodsky's essay, I was often reminded of that, and I'll tell you why in a bit. So uh, it is Lenin's Russia. His photos are everywhere, in offices and homes, in all imaginable and, of course, unimaginable locations. And this is um, what um, Brodsky says about these images. There was baby Lenin looking like a cherub in his blonde curls, then Lenin in his 20s and 30s, bald and uptight, with that meaningless expression on his face, which could be mistaken for anything, preferably a sense of purpose. This face in some way haunts every Russian and suggests some sort of standard for human appearance because it is utterly lacking in character. Perhaps because there is nothing specific in that face, it suggests many possibilities. Um, so while we meet a few other subspecies of Lenin or the Lenin optic, soon after in a paragraph such as this one, one cannot help noticing that Brodsky is continuously moving on at least two planes, the literal, which in this case is also the factual, the historical, and the aesthetic. To explain what I mean by this, uh, take the sequence and syntax of phrases uh, that I just um read out for you, how every Russian is haunted by the face of Lenin because um, there is nothing specific in that face, in that it suggests many possibilities. So, um, Jessica, um, if we move this idea to the poetic, for instance, as I did in my email to the two of you, um, for instance, we will see how the attack on the child Brodsky's eyes by the unending stream of images of Lenin leads him to understand the cliché, mm -hmm. uh, the character of the cliché, that anything that is a standard for anything, standard is Brodsky's word, 
um, whether it's human character or appearance or a landscape, must be utterly lacking in character. Again, Brodsky's words. So this is one of the primary reasons for my loving this essay, that everything in an essay called less than one is actually more than one. Is constantly giving us reiterations, giving them the character of cause, of effect, of reason. So, you know, the statement about the effect of Lenin's face on Brodsky and other Russians, come to, um, they came to affect the aesthetic of his poetry and not his alone, but also of his contemporaries as a counter movement, as it were. At least that's how I think of it. And I'll quote these two sentences from Brodsky, uh, where he says, I think that coming to ignore those pictures was my first lesson in switching off, my first attempt at estrangement. Anything that bore a suggestion of repetitiveness became compromised and subject to removal. That included phrases, trees, certain types of people, sometimes even physical pain. It affected many of my relationships. In a way, I'm grateful to Lenin. Whatever there was in plenitude, I immediately regarded as some sort of propaganda. So what if we zoomed out a little bit right now um, and just turn to the first passage? I was. Can you read that aloud for us, please? Sure. So the first paragraph goes, As failures go, attempting to recall the past is like trying to grasp the meaning of existence. Both make one feel like a baby clutching at a basketball. One's palms keep sliding off. That's the first paragraph. And that's it. That's the first paragraph. Um, I'll just spend a few, uh, maybe a minute, just talking about this leading to the second. So you see, its syntax is such that it makes us read it twice immediately. So that's almost following Robert Frost's expectation of the poem that for it to be a poem, one must want to rush to the start of the poem immediately after having reached the last word of the last line. So this is what Brodsky is able to make us do in the first paragraphs. He gives it the nervous system of a poem of the poetic, and there's no easy supply of information. The title, in any case, is already confounding. And following that lead is this paragraph of two sentences. He's given us two quasi-cliches. We've heard these phrases too many times. Uh, they don't tickle us. They don't pinch us. He follows it with a simile and a long simile at that. The baby unable to hold a basketball. So after the abstraction of the cliches, uh, what we take from the first paragraph is in total just one thing. A basketball falling off a little human's hands. And we immediately ask ourselves, is this the less than one? Or what is the relationship between the less than one and this image of the ball eluding tiny human hands. So let me read the second paragraph. It's also very short. And this is how it goes. I remember rather little of my life. And what I do remember is of small consequence. Most of the thoughts I now recall as having been interesting to me owe their significance to the time when they occurred. If any do not, they have no doubt been expressed much better by someone else. A writer's biography is in his twists of language. I remember, for instance, that when I was about 10 or 11, it occurred to me that Marx's dictum that existence conditions consciousness was true only for as long as it takes consciousness to acquire the art of estrangement. Thereafter, consciousness is on its own and can both condition and ignore existence. 
at that age, this was surely a discovery, but one hardly worth recording, and surely it had been better stated by others. And what does it really matter who first cracked the mental cuneiform of which existence conditions consciousness is a perfect example. So if the first paragraph comes from what we may roughly call the theoretical, the second is an explication of the axiomatic of the first paragraph. Um, having made a cliched observation about the selective nature of memory, he now moves to an archive um, he knows fairly well, which is himself. And having done so, he almost nervously, as one can notice in the uh, sentences, he almost nervously uh, offers, how do I say, offers a disclaimer that it's a small and inconsequential archive and that seemingly easy truism, a writer's biography is in his twists of language. And a few things here, the use of biography, not autobiography. And then the obvious consequential thought, isn't this essay, sorry, isn't this essay an autobiographical one? And we know that, yes, it is. But why this essay is not just autobiography, but indeed biography is in that sentence. We're going to meet the history of a people's language on why it turned and twisted and looked this way and that, why it burnt or became etiolated and how a people, say, bombarded by a recurring and even boring and terrifying optic created a language of poetry um, and the poetic. Um, it's just one difference. For, for instance, when I read Mandelstam, one of my favorite poets, and I'm forced to think of this Russian Jewish poet's death in a gulag in the far east of the Soviet Union at an age that is so close to what my age is now, all because he refused to toe the party line. He criticized Stalin in his writing continuously, as you know. I think of how Russian poets and Russian poetry, particularly of the first uh, in the first half of the 20th century, were forced to invent new kinds of language to survive both as person and as poet. So a writer's biography is really in the twists of language, whether it is Brodsky's or Mandelstam's or Akhmatova's. In that previous answer, you were speaking about how writing is something that Brodsky turns to and that his contemporaries are turning to for these powerful reasons. And so I just wanted to know if you could say a bit more about what Brodsky sees as art's role in not only a totalitarian society, but also in a time of war. Uh, yeah, um, thank you. I, I was hoping that uh, one of you would ask me this because this essay... Uh, is what it is for me because it exists, as I've been uh, saying, on so many planes. So the role of art, but more specifically, the role of the poetic, which is the subject of Brodsky's uh, investigation and examination and even self-examination, as it were, what he sees around him, I think, has the character of a bad poem. I'm sorry for saying this and perhaps will be judged for saying it, but everything, uh, all the rooms, all rooms look alike, he says, you know, when describing how all the classrooms were the same, how the all the principal's offices and all the offices and so on, how everything, I think he says, is interrogation chamber. So all these, all the offices, all the schools, all the classrooms in all the schools look like the interrogation chamber, the interrogation chamber is his phrase, as you know. And 
what he does his i think at least in my reading jess he takes the figure of the interrogation chamber and dislocates it from russia he moves it to different spaces of the poetic so everything becomes interrogation chamber every possible space including a poem brodsky intends for us i think to make that conclusion ourselves at one point i think he says the decor in these rooms um i think i can't remember whether he says rooms or offices the decor in these rooms was maddening uh, and the only respite the only space where he found some respite he says from these offices from this continuous or continuing optic was in the wooden peasant huts and i i have always read this as it is as if that this is what a poem ought to be that a poem ought to be not that office but that wooden peasant hut that unexpectedness so brodsky without knowing it or perhaps consciously uh, i shouldn't presume begins to reject the neatness and order of what all of them were being force fed particularly visually um at some point he says we were never troubled by our fantasies because we had just too much reality to deal with and he mentions how um young boys such as himself he and his friends and relatives chose a socialist realist painting i can't remember the title of the painting it might have been admission to the komsomol admission I, I, i i'm sorry i just can't remember the title of the painting and it has a woman um where only 2 or 3 inches of her thigh is visible and brodsky and the young boys turn to it to do the work of pornography as it were so he's making us question the idea of freedom and escape repeatedly freedom and escape not from russia uh per se but from a cer- but from a certain idea and ideology of thinking um of living of creating of creativity um so when he writes about life in prison he makes his reader think of it analogically in terms of art of the poetic of the possible limits of the poetic so i think he says that the formula for prison is a lack of space counterbalanced by a surplus of time mm-hmm. so brodsky's enemy is not so much the kgb his interrogator but quote unquote order now seems like a good time to turn to the second passage you selected uh, can you read that for us please i guess there was always some me inside that small and later somewhat bigger shell around which everything was happening inside that shell the entity which one calls i never changed and never stopped watching what was going on outside i'm not trying to hint at pearls inside what i'm saying is that the passage of time does not much affect that entity to get a glow grade to operate a milling machine to be beaten up at an interrogation or to lecture on callimachus in a classroom is essentially the same this is what makes one feel a bit astonished when one grows up and finds oneself tackling the tasks that are supposed to be handled by grown ups the dissatisfaction of a child with his parents control over him and the panic of an adult 
confronting a responsibility are of the same nature. One is neither of these figures. One is perhaps less than one. It's a rather a st- a striking equivalence he draws there when he says, to get a low grade, to operate a milling machine, to be beaten up at an interrogation or to lecture on Callimachus in a classroom is essentially the same. How, how are they essentially the same? What about them is, uh, you know, grouped together there? Ah, yes. Uh, so what he's doing is, he, in almost a Hansel and Riddle-like manner, he scatters these and he gathers them in the next paragraph. And I'll just read the last sentence of this next paragraph. I have the book with me. Uh, where, So, uh, Zach, you'll notice in the next paragraph, um, he, he's again bringing two kinds of equivalences, which are not equivalences. If you are in banking or if you fly an ec- aircraft, you know that you gain a substantial amount of expertise and so on. Uh, and we know that. And then he transposes this to what he calls the business of writing. And where he says, what one accumulates is not expertise, but uncertainties, which is but another name for craft. And then towards the end of the paragraph, he says, oh, but to answer your question, so he says, so I would be lying if I resorted to chronology or to anything that suggests a linear process. And then this a school is a factory, is a poem, is a prison, is academia, is boredom with flashes of panic. So it's a revolutionary thing to say, right? That what one accumulates in the business of writing is not expertise, but uncertainties to define craft in this way. Um, so if this is what craft is, what do people like us, people like me, who are now earning a living trying to teach creative writing and craft and so on, what can we teach then? So if if craft is an accumulation not of expertise, but of uncertainties, how do we hone our craft, as that repeatedly stabbed phrase goes? I've read this sentence within with the two selves inside me. Uh, so the first one, for instance, is the creative pra- practitioner in me, agreeing with every bit of it, high-fiving Brodsky, as it were, knowing every bit of it to be true. Yes, yes, yes. Creative practice is a constant wrestle and negotiation with uncertainty. And every single moment is outside intention and creating cannot be a premeditated act and so on. But there's also the nervous creative writing teacher in me who's earning her living by teaching what often, if not always, feels like a fraud discipline. What can I really teach my students? I can only give them practice like a singer or an athlete needs. To go back to the sentence that you quoted, Zach, he's, apart from subverting the idea of craft, particularly in a place like America, where the word craft is now almost used in a religious tone, something Brodsky began to spot early. He's dismantling, as you noticed, hierarchies repeatedly, such as in doing away with the idea of linearity and chronology that is sacred to even literary historians. So school, factory, prison, academia, getting low grades, all of these are brought in the same space without overt histories of relationships mentioned. For that is how the mind and art behaves. So art is not constitutional in that sense. There is no order of relationships. And hence, I would go back to the same thing. And hence, the governments need to tame both the art and the artist, the message and the messenger, because they are uncontrollable, both the mind and art and poetic practice. 
we also were uh, wanted to talk about an essay that you wrote um, called "We Are All Mamata Now" that you wrote for uh, in 2012, and we were wondering if you could tell us about how it relates to Brodsky's essay and, and how Brodsky informed your your writing. Bishnu De, a Bengali Marxist poet, wrote a poem which had the line "Amra Shabai Lenin," which translates to "We are all Lenin." More than a decade ago, when I wanted to write about um, the changing culture in Bengal, after 34 years of a communist uh, government in West Bengal, the state where I live, the left front came to power when I was two years old. I shared this just to emphasize that I grew up in a communist state where offices and even houses had photos of Lenin and Marx everywhere. So that we came to think of having, as children, we came to think of having a beard as being the sign of a true communist. Brodsky had to flee to America to save his life. Bengalis, professionals, engineers in particular, but also teachers and doctors and other professionals, fled to America to get a life. Bengal was dying. And I still remember, uh, I was a child, I still remember the anger and controversy the Indian Prime Minister's words of that time caused. I heard adults around me discuss with anger and outrage how the Indian Prime Minister at that time, Rajiv Gandhi, in disenchantment and disgust with the left fronts, with the communist government's policies, how he had called Calcutta a dying city. The only way out seemed to be the United States. So this became a formula for resident Bengalis, you know, parents of of friends, for instance, who began raising children, sending them to schools and colleges in spite of all their financial hardships, just so that they could have a new life in America. So years of left-front-led education policies, the corrupt practice of jobs given to communist party cadres, had resulted in a culture of emptiness. The Bangla, the language which had been born into a beautiful modern language, had changed as had the ethos and ways of living. And that is what I tried to document that. Um, I tried to document that in an essay. So when Bishnu De, the poet, had said, we are, I had written, we are all Lenin, I replaced Lenin with Mamata, Mamata Banerjee, the new chief minister of the state of West Bengal whose photos have become ubiquitous. They are everywhere. They had replaced Lenin. And there was more. Mamata Banerjee's sari is white. It has a white, thin blue border. It provides the colors for all government buildings. So if you come to Bengal, you find that all its government or official buildings are now all painted blue and white, an inversion of the sky that is worth. So we are all Mamata. That was the title of my essay. And I hadn't imagined that anyone from the party, the Trinamool Congress party in this case, would read the essay. You know, it is still hard for me to imagine Indian politicians reading essays. And I was duly punished. I had to resign from my government job soon after. But in this India, from where I'm speaking to you, Mamata Banerjee is not alone. It is impossible to not meet the Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi in the newspaper every morning. And I do not mean news reports, but in advertisements of the government's achievements, his achievements since 2014, when the BJP came to power. So the culture that Brodsky writes about of sightings of Lenin, the endless propaganda, 
It has become a formula for all political parties and their leaders in India. Before Mamata Banerjee and Narendra Modi, with all the differences in their political ideologies, there was the Congress leader and the Indian Prime Minister Indira Gandhi, who very famously said, India is Indira. So there's a surname of visibility that should always remain activated. And the family that she came from, Nehru and the Gandhi surnames, marked the names of institutions all over India. So the name of the International Airport in Delhi, the name of a very well-known university in Delhi, many universities, colleges, hospitals, schools, government schemes. So I share this, uh, and I'll end here. I'll share this to empathize, uh, sorry, emphasize that uh, though Brodsky is writing about Stalinist Russia, his observations hold true for governments of all kinds everywhere. It is the nature, I think, of administrators to be narcissistic, to want to clone themselves as their nation. Uh, It is, I think, uh, a natural extension. So in that previous answer, you were speaking both to the aesthetic and the political. Mm -hmm. And can you say a bit more about what you see as the relationship between aesthetics and politics in your own work? So oftentimes, as you know, Jess, I write about plant life mm-hmm. and oftentimes I have been asked, Why, do you not care enough for humans that you feel the need to write about plant life, for instance? And my impulse is neither coming from, for instance, environmental activism, nor from the environmental humanities, not from the botanical, but something very close to love. Um, And if love is philosophical, I would say that it is philosophical as well. It is coming from a place of philosophical botany, but from a place of deep affection that I myself don't understand. And in this case, I do not understand or I refuse to understand or make a distinction between how writing about humans is different from, or let me just say say this in an obverse way, how writing about plants I do not make a distinction in the way I write about a plant in this room, the plant behind you, Jess, in your room, and you, for instance. I would write about the two of you in with the same degree of affection uh, and uh, all the other attendant emotions. I would say so. I think my politics comes from the fact that. And here I would go back to Brodsky in just in a little way. I realized, and not too long ago, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, that I had been raised by a culture because I grew up in the provinces, and this is where I'm speaking to you from, where the attention was always elsewhere on metropolitan centers of power, where wherever that location might be. I somehow became interested in what is traditionally called the background. Uh, so I realized that I had been photographing walls in, in this region I live in, northern Bengal, without really understanding why. Wherever I would go, it is possible that I might forget that you are wearing the color of your um, sweater is orange or saffron, but I'll certainly remember the plants in the background, Jess. So I suffer from what 
the obverse of what Matthew Hall called plant blindness, for instance. I suffer from the opposite. What I suffer from is a condition where I am addicted to the background. So whether it's people, people not noticed, people on the margins, and I say margins by which I do not like this. Uh, how do I say it without uh, being attacked? Um, I, I know that the two of you will understand because I'm aware of your temperament as writers and critics. Um the marginalized is such an overused term. I'm not using marginalized in that sense. But the fact that when I look at a work of art, I see what has happened to art after the Renaissance and what portraiture has done to it, where everything besides the human has been relegated either to the margins or to the background, so that when there are almost no humans in the frame, we've had to invent a kind of genre, as it were. So this is landscape painting and so on. So this has happened in the case of art as well. How does it relate to my politics? The way I write about... Um, so having... Uh, let me phrase it this way. I Having lived among an etiolated people where there has never been the light... Not, not just the spotlight, but not the, where there's never been the light of attention. I think my writing comes, the language of that writing and the writing itself, the subject of the writing comes from that space of what is conventionally and traditionally seen as the background. And Shumana, can I ask you, so I think you're the first guest we've had on Selected Essays who, um, and, and correct me if I've misunderstood, but you said that you lost your, your job in government based on the essay that you wrote. Um, yeah. And I'm wondering how that's affected your practice as an essay writer, as somebody who um, writes under the, the sign of threat in that way. Um, how has that shaped you as, as a writer? Uh, so this essay, I think, was published, I can't remember now, it was published in 2011 or 12. And so what the government did was, um, in response, so I, I belonged to the government college network. So this was a transferable position. Uh, and they began transferring me what is called, in an informal way, punishment posting zones, you know, uh, where the environment is not easy, particularly they were setting up new colleges and places which did not have, for instance, not just basic educational infrastructure, but they posted me to a place where I was the only woman on faculty and there were no ladies' toilets, women's toilets, for instance. So posting me to these places that were called, um, in the informal language of bureaucracy uh, or in this particular network, punishment postings, it was just forcing me to resign instead of them actually. So I as I said, creating a very hostile environment, Zach. Uh, and then I resigned in March 2016. And one of the ways the system continue can continue to harass you is by not accepting your resignation, by which it means, which implies, sorry, that you cannot travel out of the country. I, I tried my best and I pleaded 
for the resignation to be accepted. And fortunately, I, I just think I was very fortunate. Not all people are. My resignation was uh, accepted. So I was without a job for a couple of years. And at that point of time, you asked me how it affected my practice as an essay writer. The poem and the essay are my favorite forms, my favorite habitats. And um, I I remember that was also the time I wrote a poem, a found poem, using a phrase that the right-wing government in India, or the BJP government, was using a lot. They were saying, for anything, any kind of disagreements that, that you showed in your writing or, you know, the way you lived in a tweet or so on, some member of the government, often, you know, it's it's online uh, army, as it were, would say, go to Pakistan. So I wrote a poem around that time, I think the same year, where I, you know, smuggled this phrase. The title of the poem is Go to Pakistan. Uh, did it embolden me as a writer? I would say, Zach, it had the opposite effect uh, on me, uh, contrary to what I think the government would have liked. It did give me a lot of freedom. Uh, as an employee of the government, we were supposed to always show the government our work before we sent it out for publication. I was able to be free uh, after that in the sense that I no longer needed to show anyone my writing except the editors. Is it an easy time to write, Zach? No, it isn't. Many of my contemporaries are in jail in India. Writers, essayists, poets, um, there are warrants and uh, arrest warrants often against stand-up comedians. You know that um, any state, any government is scared of the comic, of the comedic, of comedians. So uh, we have, it's not an easy place to write from, Zach. Well, Shumana, thanks you so much for joining us on this episode of Selected Essays. We really appreciate having you here. Yes, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Jessica and Zach. Thanks, everyone, for joining us for this episode of Selected Essays. We'd like to thank John Travaskis for editing the podcast and Meg Duffy of Hand Habits for contributing the original music. As always, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. and Please subscribe to The Point. There's a discount code for listeners in the show notes. If you have questions, comments, or anything else, send an email to selectedessays at thepointmag.com. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time, listeners. <laughs>